Hi, everybody. My name is Keith. I'm an alcoholic. And I want to thank the committee for inviting myself and my lovely wife and my sponsor and Nancy and all the other speakers uh, to this conference because it seems like uh, you have a hell of a thing going here. And uh, Norm and Pat have been probably the most gracious uh, people that we've ever had uh, to uh, be with us at conferences and take care of us. They've just been keep, keeping us busy, you know. And they're two lovely people. And I want to thank them for all they've done so far. And it's only the first day. That's not bad, is it? I, um, I've been sober since uh, July 20th, 1967. And, uh, and uh, in six months and ten days, I'll be well into my, 30, my uh, fourth uh, decade of sobriety, which won't be bad, right? Except the only problem is you get older, you know, when this happens, you know? <laughs> you get older and older and older. <laughs> My lovely wife and I will be married 48 years on January 23rd. Not bad. My sponsor will be married 49 years on March 20th. He beats me at everything, you know? And I guess that's the way it should be. It's called consistency, and it's the things that... Uh, I've learned, uh, you know, since I came to this program. I, uh, I like to talk about three things because I like to remember these things. And one is that, you know, all my life before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I wanted to be important. And I think most Alkies are kind of that way. But some more than others, naturally. And uh, I had a bad case, you know, ego and, you know, self-centeredness and pride and, you know, that... that, that way of, of feeling that you just aren't worth anything, you know? You never have been worth anything, you never will be worth anything. That inside gut is empty, you know, you, you don't fit in, you know, people don't like you, you just know people don't like you. Nancy talked about it today, and it's so apparent with us alcoholics, so it is with me. And so in order to feel like somebody, I had to be important. And so I would, you know, overachieve, I would... Uh, try harder than anybody. I would, you know, try to become that something that I didn't even know what I wanted to become, you know. Just, just to feel important made me okay. And, you know, that's, uh, that's not like that anymore. I don't need to feel important anymore. And it's, you know, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, 100%. The other thing is, you know, I used to like to force my will on everybody, you know, <laughs> especially the little guys, you know. <laughs> the big guys, I don't know, you know. <laughs> they might beat me up. I'm talking about as a kid. Anyway, I, I, you know, I've learned that uh, I can't force my will on anybody. I, I just, you know, all I can do is be somebody that's doing something on a daily basis that hopefully it will make me a better person and carry the message, you know, to the alcoholic who still suffers that maybe they can be, a, you know, a better person. And the other thing is, uh, and I think this is about the most important thing is. Uh, I believe in the connection, you know, the connection. Calling that sponsor every day, that's the connection. The connection to something that makes me feel better, makes me live longer, makes me able to function in a world that I could never function before. And once you make that connection to the sponsor, then you've made a connection to your, to your home group. And you've made your connection to 
the people that in that home group that, that your peers, you know, the people that you grew up with in AA, you know. And if you're new, I mean, you're here a day, you know, you have peers now. You have people that uh, love you, you know, and, and, and are people that are going to give service to this program. And like Dr. Bob said, the two most important words of AA are love and service, you know. And uh, the connection is so, so important to me. And if you're sitting out there tonight and you don't have the connection, you don't have a sponsor, I just feel sorry for you. I really do because, uh, you, you know, you're not making it. And you're not going to make it, I guarantee you. I've seen a hell of a lot of people come to this program. And they make the connection and they're doing good and then they kind of slide away and oh, I don't listen to that butthole anymore, you know. And, you know, what does he know, you know. You know. I had a friend of mine, I grew up in this program, Dave, H. And just be, two months before his 25th birthday, you know, he went out. And he's still out there and he still can't get sober. And that was four years ago, you know. And uh, he slid away. He didn't, you know, he... he didn't like his first sponsor, so he got another sponsor. He didn't like him. He got another sponsor. You know, he didn't make that connection every day to a sponsor that is going to help him survive, you know. I looked up the word connection in the dictionary. It means a state of being connected or a state of being united, both, you know. And, hey, I want to be united with a bunch of people like you. I really do. God, I love you. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I really and truly love just being sober and just being able to go to a, to a group, my home group, that, you know, that makes me feel better when I leave. I, I just recently, a year and a half ago, moved to Indian Wells, California. Uh, my wife and I uh, had been in the Valley and we'd been in Pasadena and uh, a, a medical thing that we had to move someplace. So we moved out there and we dearly love it. But it's uh, 142 miles from my house to my home group. And I drive that, you know, every, uh, every Wednesday. I go to any length, right? <laughs> but you know, some, you know, it, it, it's a great feeling to be able to do that. I've been going to that home group for 29 and a half years, you know. And that's a link. That's a connection. You know, that's what's made me the person that I am today. And I'm a pretty damn good person today. I'm certainly not like I used to be. I'm and I really believe that sponsorship, the, the, the ability to, to do things on a, on a um, committed basis, you know, and a, the ability to follow directions. Um, God, my ego and my pride wouldn't, pride wouldn't even let me even think about following direction when I was drinking. I knew it all. And I, you know, I'm going to be that way. And, you, you know, if you, were, if you were right and I was wrong, I'd convince you you were right. You were wrong, I mean, and I was right. I mean, just, you know, that's the way I was. And it's not like that anymore. Life is uh, awfully good. I, um, I, Jim Williams is a little guy from Texas. He always, he's, he hadn't been talking much lately. I think he's been pretty ill. But he used to always say, you know, when you know that you know that you know that you know, you don't know, you know. And, you know, that's the way it was before I got the alcoholics out of it. You know, I thought I knew everything, you know, and, you know, finally I found out that I don't know anything, you know. Get to this program, you find out you don't know anything for crying out loud. You know, so I've kind of added something to that, you know. When you don't know that you don't know that you don't know, then you know. Isn't that true? About Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. When we get here, we're, we're dummy newcomers. We don't know anything for crying out loud. I, you know, that, I was told I didn't, that's for sure. And my sponsor is Clancy, and he's going to be the speaker 
tomorrow night, and I've had him as a sponsor since the second day I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And um, that's commitment, and that's consistency, and that's what uh, he teaches, and that's what the Pacific Group that I'm a member of, that we do in the Pacific Group, you know. There's no nonsense, you know, in our, in our group. There's structure in our group, consistency, and there's a tremendous amount of sponsorship. It's, you know, and, you know, it's not... I mean, Clancy's been a fantastic sponsor, no doubt about it. But it's not that that one-on-one -on -one that, you know, that he and I have had over the years. It's the, what he has laid down in the Pacific Group, the structure of the Pacific Group, and the commitments, and like Nancy was talking about that story about being late, you know. Uh, God, I remember one time, uh, he says, well, why don't you meet me a quarter to seven at my house, and I'm going to speak someplace, and we'll talk on the way and back, you know, and I was new, you know. And I said, great, oh, I'm going to go with my sponsor, you know. And uh, I got there. I thought it poured to seven, you know. But evidently, it was like ten seconds less. Less, you know. And, you know, the car is speeding off down the road, you know. And I said, that damn sponsor, what is he doing to me? I'm a newcomer, you know. What is he doing to me, you know. So I, well, I think I knocked on the door, and Charlotte answered the door, and I said, where's your husband? He said, well, he's gone. He was supposed to pick you up. What time did you get here? And I said, well, I got her on time. He says, no, you probably didn't, Keith. <laughs> you know? And I called him up the next day. I said, what are you doing to me? You know? And he says, hey, he says, if you don't show up on time, he says, you're going to smell gas fumes. <laughs> a good way to put it, you know. But it's true, you know. And I don't think I've been late for too many things since then. <laughs> and that's been 29 years and probably two or three months ago, you know. But I tell you something, you know, it, it, it's what makes me feel good. It wasn't that I had to be on time for class. You know, I had to be on time for me, you know. And that's what we've learned, you know, from being around people that have, uh, you know, that have gone before us, that have one drunk talking to another drunk. That's it. So I'm really grateful uh, to be here, and I, you know, I'm grateful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and pretty. And uh, I love alcoholics. I love them, and I love uh, what they do. I love the good things they do, and I love the seemingly bad things they do. You know, because we grow from not only being good all the time, we grow from being bad sometimes. You know, <laughs> and I love that to be able to be in a place like that. I um. I was born in Bakersfield, California, a little town just north of Los Angeles, and I had a father and a mother and a sister, and went to Christian Science Sunday School, and, you know, had a normal childhood, very normal childhood, and uh, I remember in kindergarten, my teacher came up to me and she said, Keithy, and I looked at her, and I said, Mrs. Fullerton, my name is Keith. I didn't want to be called a sissy name like Keithy, you know, in kindergarten, you know. I'm sure that Johnny didn't mean like calling Johnny and Dick didn't mind me calling Dickie, you know, or whatever, you know. But I didn't want to be called Keithy. I remember that, you know. And she says, well, Keithy, uh, you've been chosen to recite a poem at the Easter pageant, you know. I says, but Mrs. Fullerton, you don't understand. I can't do that, you know. I can't get up in front of all the, the whole Jefferson Grammar School at the Easter pageant and recite a poem from a podium. I mean, there's just no way that I could ever do that, you know. And she looked at me and she says, well, you're going to do it, and walked away. So I remember I went home and I took that stupid little poem and I studied it and I studied it and I practiced it and I practiced it and I studied it and I, I did an alcoholic thing, you know. That's what we alcoholics do when we get back against the wall. 
we try to, you know, make it where it's going to work out somehow, right? How many times have we been through that? Anyway, I got up there that, that Easter, and they called me to the podium, you know, and I said, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder where you are to perfection. I didn't miss a beat. And man, you know what I got for that? I got what every alcoholic in the world has fought for, strived for, lied for, cheated for. I got approval. I got ready for candy. You know, God Almighty, you know. I mean, it was, it was like a, a new world to me, you know. I did something, and I didn't screw it up. And from that moment to this moment, I have overachieved, underachieved, lied, stolen, cheated, written hot checks to buy the house of beer or drinks. You know, I've done everything in the world for your approval. Because approval for me is zero. Approval for me is absolutely zero. I had no reason to believe that I was going to be a good person. I had no reason to believe that I was going to be handsome because I was ugly in my eyes. I had no reason to believe that I was going to be important to anybody. And that's from, you know, from four, five, six years old, right on through before I had a drink, you know. And I really think that that's alcoholism. You don't have to drink to have alcoholism, you know. I believe that God gave me a set of emotions that are almost impossible to function with out there in that world today. He gave me these emotions, and I had to live with them, and I had to struggle through them until I found alcohol, you know. And then it kind of made it okay for a while, you know. But anyway, I uh, started in life, and I, I always wanted to be a good athlete because I loved athletics. I loved, you know, I loved tetherball for crying out loud. You know, that's kind of stupid, you know. You know, I built, a, I built a pole vault pit in my backyard when I was about eight years old, seven years old, six years old. I used to pole vault when I was just a little kid, you know. I loved playing sandlot, sandlot football and out there in the, in, in the asphalt, you know, and falling and scrubbing up your knees and bleeding, you know, and everything. And God, it felt good, you know. I loved baseball. I loved every kind of sport there was. I built a, a basketball hoop in my backyard, you know, and I'd just stand out there, especially on a moonlit night, you know, and I'd shoot baskets till midnight, you know, because I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to be good. And when you were a good athlete, you got recognition. I could see it. I read it in the papers. I heard it on Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy. I don't, you guys don't remember that, probably. But, you know, I mean, I, I just love athletics. You know? So I tried to overachieve in them. And I uh, had a good childhood. My dad had a, a gold mine and a tungsten mine up in the high Sierras. We used to go up there on weekends and work the mines. God, it was fun. He taught me how to shoot a bow and arrow and how to shoot a twenty-two. and taught me how to, how to trout fish in those streams up in the high Sierras, you know. And he taught me to stand on the right side of the stream so my shadow wouldn't fall in the water, and then the trout wouldn't know I was there, and they would bite. And I thought, that sounds kind of stupid, but let me try it. And I tried it, and I got my limit, you know. What a brilliant man. My father was. And he was a, a fabulous guy. He, he was the kind of guy that everybody loved. And at nine, I marched to the Armistice Day Parade with him. I had my little soldier cap and big guns. And, and on Armistice Day years ago, they used to have these parades with the big guns and the tanks, you know, and the soldiers, you know, from the First World War and the Second World War and whatever war, you know. And I marched with him, and God, I felt so good. And that afternoon, two men brought him home, and uh, he was stumbling and falling. And uh, my mom, being from a Swedish family with nine sisters and four brothers, and them, all of them drunks, practically, said, oh, my God, he's drunk, you know, but my dad didn't drink. He'd make a half a glass of beer when he was playing his guitar and singing, and that was it. 
Anyway, they brought him home, they laid him on the bed, and he went into a coma that day. And for 16 days later, I went down to my grandmother's house, and I lived with her and uh, my, uh, my sister and I, and uh, he was at Sawtell down in Los Angeles, and he was in his coma, and they, didn't, they knew nothing about what was wrong with him. Absolutely nothing. And I was going to Christian Science Center, Baker Eddy, they had little gold stars, you know, or going to, going to you know, Kitty Garden, you know, and I was saying my prayers every night, my prayers, you know. My uh, Christian Science prayers and my... Now he lay me down to sleep prayer, you know. I mean, I was a pretty good kid, I guess, you know. And uh, my aunt walked into the room where my sister and I were sleeping at Grandma's house, and she says, kids, I got bad news for you. And I just said, amen. And she said, kids, I got bad news for you. And I had just said, amen. Uh, it's probably the most severe thing that I ever felt in my life. It was like a big two-by-four just jammed me in the back of the head and just, I was ready to be destroyed, you know. Because I really, truly loved that man. He was, he, he was a fabulous guy. He had more people at his funeral than the mayor of Bakersfield. You know, and he drove a laundry truck. I mean, the people just loved him, you know. Anyway, I looked up at the ceiling of that bedroom, and I says, God, you dirty SOB. And I called him that name outright. I says, I'll never believe in you again. Never believe in you again. And I uh, never did until I got to this program and was forced to. But I, um, I, <laughs> I started out, and I was going to be the man of the family, right? I was going to be the breadwinner because I had a mother and a sister. And I went out and I got a job, and I didn't get one paper out. I got three rocks, you know. Well, that's alcoholic, you know. And that first paycheck I was going to take home to mom. Instead, I bought all the kids Cokes and, and ice cream. And then I started home. And, you know, no money to give to my mother. And my mother was working in the laundry making 15 bucks a week, you know. I mean, we're not a very wealthy family, that's for sure. And she needed that money, you know. And God, the big G said it, guilt. You know, it's like when the newcomer comes in, he says, Boy, I feel so guilty, you know. And the old-timer says, because you're guilty, dummy. You know? <laughs> Why else do you feel guilty? And I felt guilty, and I drummed up this fabulous story, and I walked home, and I told Mom this fabulous story, what happened to the money, and she believed. You know, we alcoholics are great con artists, you know. We can tell those stories, and they believe us. Those Al-Anons, man, they're, they're easy. <laughs> and they do believe us, you know, because they really think it. And we think when we tell those stories sometimes that, that, that we're telling the truth, you know. We alcoholics, you know. So anyway, I uh, started out to become the man of the family, and I got a job in a milk truck, and, and geez, it was a fabulous job. And the guy kind of became my father image. And then I became 13. I don't remember when you were 13, but, you know, that's a horrible age. Absolutely horrible age. 13 years old, tall, skinny, acne on my face so bad that when I looked in the mirror, I knew nobody would ever love me. Nobody would ever love me. And I was just miserable. Went to Uncle Pete's house every Christmas Eve. Santa Claus came at 8 o'clock every Christmas Eve, brought me that present every Christmas Eve, having a, you know, going to have a great Christmas Eve. And all my cousins were trying to get me to dance for them. And I, you know, I, I, I don't get near girls, you know. I just don't get near, I'm too ugly to get near a girl. Teen. That white hair, it stuck straight up. They used to call me Whitey. You know, God, I hated that, you know. Keithy and Whitey, you know, all these stupid names, you know. And I went in and I grabbed a bottle of VO and I went back in the, in the back of this big old house in East Bakersfield, went into the closet, jammed, slammed the drawer, took that bottle and whammo, you know. Big old slug of, of straight VO and it was the most 
horrible, hideous thing that happened. I just spit it out, man. God, I mean, well, how can they like that stuff? You know, I'm going to be an athlete. You know, I'm not going to ever drink and ever smoke. What am I drinking this for? You know, that kind of an attitude. And then all of a sudden, what happens? It dribbles down. You know, and you know, it it, it just comes up the back, and your hair feels good, your toenails feel good, everything in between. You know, and you take another one, another. I took six, seven shots out of that bottle, and I went back in there and learned how to jitterbug that night. I learned how to walk and talk and be somebody, you know. I learned how to say the right things at the right time, ha-ha, you know. I learned how to love and kind of kiss my cousins, and, you know. And I thought, man, this is it, you know. Alcohol has taken away all those feelings, those horrible feelings of inefficiency and inadequacy and, you know, feeling of, of, of no self-worth and everything. This is it, you know. And I drank Every ounce of liquor I could drink, every ounce of alcohol I could drink from age 13 to age 38, I, I, I was not a periodic drinker. I drank, you know, because when I drank, it made me feel good. I drank all the way through high school. Gene Garnier and his dad and mom owned Joso's, a big restaurant there, and they made their own wine. He had wine in the locker room in the, in, the, in the gym and gave me the key to get in there, and I could drink wine anytime I wanted. And also, on the other side of the coin, I became a great athlete. I really was. I became a good athlete. Let's put it that way. I lettered in four sports in four years. Football, basketball, baseball, and track. I became uh, the Sam Lynn uh, Trophy winner for Bakersfield, uh, which was for the outstanding athlete for the whole junior year. I became student body president for, for my whole student body. You know, I, be, I did these things, you know. And, and the reason I did those things and I was able to do them, I think, was the fact that, you know, I had three Ds, drive, desire, and determination to be somebody and to be important. And if I was somebody and if I was important, I felt good. And the alcohol took the other edge off and made me even feel better for crying out loud. Made me feel better. So my, my life was, uh, in all through high school, I mean, I did some horrible things through high school. We used to go out to the Kern River. I used to steal booze from my uncle and go out to the Kern River and shoot cigarettes out of our mouths, you know. But also, we used to get in the bushes with the girls, you know. So, and we used to chase down bunny rabbits, you know. And, we, and I used to just do some crazy, stupid things. Stupid things. But man, were they fun. Yeah? Remember those things that you did that were stupid that were really fun to do, you know. God, they were great. I got a scholarship to Stanford, and I went up there and I had to run away from there because they were all kids that had doctors and, and lawyers for, for uh, fathers, and I had a, no father and a mother, you know, that worked in a laundry, you know. I couldn't fit in, and I had a full scholarship to Stanford. And I, I hitchhiked home, and I had a ticket in my pocket to come home, but I had to run. We alcoholics have to run away from things that are not comfortable because until we know that we have to stay long enough to make them comfortable, and that's what alcoholics are not for us. Came home, and I went to Bakersfield College, and God, Bakersfield College, we had some good football teams. They used to have a, uh, a little super, a little uh, Rose Bowl. You know, we, we, we went to Rose Bowl about five or six times. Anyway, this year we had uh, a team that beat one team 96 to 6 and gave them the six points. Beat another team 105 to nothing, and we didn't give them nothing because we hated them, you know. And we were good. And when you're good and you're beating teams like that, you get a lot of recognition, you know. Frank Gifford was on that team. Sid Hall, who went to the Bears. I ended up with the 49ers. We had six guys off that junior college team that went into the, into the pros and you know, became somebody. Became somebody. Went into college and, and the pros and became somebody, you know. So we got a lot of self-worth from that. 
But you know something? We drank so much. That team drank so much that they denied to give us our letters and our banquet at the end of the year. We were screw-ups, you know? We were, all of us, not all of us, there, no, you, the whole team can't be drunks, you know? But I'd say 50% of us were drunks, you know? I used to go over to East Bakersfield High School and, you know, big-time athlete, you know, come back to high school, you know, and watch the girls. I'm a, I love watching girls, you know? In fact, I still tell my wife that everything's married but my right eye, you know? <laughs> I can tell this one right here. He's a girl watcher, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm a girl watcher. Anyway, this little girl came walking out of the music room, and, you know, she had these long brown hair and these beautiful eyes, and God, she was pretty well endowed, you know? And I'm watching her, and I says, who the hell is that? And my buddy Tommy Lathe says, that's Sally Peters. She just moved here from Oklahoma. I said, oh, my God, she's so beautiful. I'm going to marry her. First thing I said about this woman, I'm going to marry her. And four months later, we were married. Four months later, we were off to San Jose State for another scholarship, another opportunity. But I had such bad grades in junior college because all I did for two years was drink and play football and basketball and other sports. I got D's and F's in every subject except football, basketball, baseball, track. I got A in that, you know. <laughs> so I had to go up there, and I had to get a B average in order to get my scholarship and play football the next year. And I went up there, and, you know, we alcoholics, when we put our mind to something, you know, we can do it. And I studied hard, you know. And uh, she became pregnant. And uh, we had a little little place over the Greyhound bus depot. Paid $12.50 a month for it, you know. And they gave me my scholarship. I got a check for $46 every month for cleaning out one of the rooms that I never saw, you know. <laughs> and uh, went through college, and uh, we had some good teams. Uh, we went to the, uh, the Raisin Bowl years ago, and um, it, was a, it, was a, it was fun. Went to Hawaii and played in the Hula Bowl, and uh, I was good. And I, I, I was uh, honorable mention All-American my last year in college. And, uh, you know, it was uh, fun, and I got pretty good grades, and... We had two kids right off the bat, and, you know, things were okay, except I was drinking a lot. I was drinking way too much. In fact, I'd get on my bicycle to go home, and I'd have a dollar or two in my pocket, and I'd say, Jesus, should I go to the grocery store and buy the babies uh, milk, which I knew that they needed, or should I go to Tenth and Keys, the local hangout where all the guys hang out and the girls, and have a cold one? Every single time, this maniac in this head up here tells me, to go to Tenth and Keys. And at 2 in the morning, I'd drive this bicycle home drunk, you know. Never got a ticket for a drunken bicycle ride, though. <laughs> and I'd go home, you know, and then she'd meet me at the door. Where have you been, you know? Where's the money? Where's the milk, you know? And I'd have to con up another story. Well, I lost it or it slipped out of my pocket or, you know, some stupid thing, you know. And, uh, you know, that, that's the way I was. Alcohol was more important than my, my babies, my wife, you know my relationship with her, alcohol always came first. And it just kept happening that way. And I graduated from college, and I got drafted by the 49ers, and I went up there, and I was going to make that team no matter what. You know, if I could make that team, I could buy the little white house with a white picket fence. You know, I could buy the kids an education. I could do the things that make me feel good, make me feel important, you know. And so I did extra sit-ups and extra laps. Uh, Billy Wilson, uh, he was six-time All-Pro for the 49ers, and then he and I went to San Jose together. He had gone up the year before, and he and I worked out together, and we did extra sit-ups, extra laps, just to be able to make that team. We were locked into camp from July to the first uh, game, first uh, practice game, 
And we couldn't call our wives. We couldn't call our... We just locked into camp. Hit the field at seven, uh, 6 in the morning. You know, banging the heads till noon. Lunch. Playbooks till about 2. Bang heads till 6 o'clock. Playbooks. Watch the movies, you know, for the new plays to the, fill in the playbook. And at 9 o'clock, you were in that bed and there's lights out and that was it. We did that day after day after day for about 14 days. Well, the sixth day... A little halfback named Joe Arenas, great little, great little guy. He said, hey, Carp, how would you like a beer? Bing! I got a beer. How the hell do you get out of here, you know? He says, ah, he says, put some pillows in your bed and make it look like you're there. And they, they just peek in there. They don't really check it. And he says, we'll go down to Redwood City and we'll have a hoist a few, you know. And man, I thought, that's great. And we went down there and I sat at that bar with Leo Nomalini, you know, and White Tittle, you know, Frankie Albert and all these great great football players and I'm sitting there so I'm a part of you know I'm it the only problem was that night Joe and I drank about 40 beers and then all the rest of the guys drank a few beers and went back you know? <laughs> you know? but man I'm a part of right <laughs> and that seemed to be the story of my professional football career I drank myself right out of the 49ers into the Edmonton Eskimos they traded me to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers because I drank my way right out of that they traded me to the Toronto Argonauts because I drank my way out of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, you know. I played professional football for five years for five different teams and never made it. Never made it, you know. Because I, I, I was an alcoholic and didn't know it. I have, nothing, I have no story about drugs, you know, because I, I never took a drug in my life. They used to give us bennies up there. And I had this guy named John Brown, big, uh, big guy that he was... His number was zero zero, and he was big, and he played center, and he loved bennies, man. And I used to save up the bennies, you know, and he'd save me the beers, you know. And I drank beers, and I'd give him the bennies, you know, and did some crazy things. Went into the into the mausoleum business in Toronto, Canada, you know, to make a million dollars, you know. <laughs> sent my wife home, you know. It was the last year I played professional football, and I sent my wife home, and I, and. We started making money. We built beautiful hillside mausoleums, and we sold these crypts to these people. And they could slide their body in above the ground, you know, and have this marble front on it. I mean, oh, man, was, we took all the money, and we went everywhere. We went to New York City, to Buffalo. We went all over, you know, and spent all the money, and when the time come to pay the bills, we didn't have it. But they ran us out of town. They really did. They have a, a set of blue laws in Canada, you know. And it's a very religious country, really. And they just, uh, I mean, they ran us out of town. We sold the company for a dollar. And that guy made a fortune, you know, made a fortune. Back to Bakersfield, in the car business, out of the car business, you know. Drinking more, more and more. Selling cars all over. Sold a truck up into Turnville and came back down that canyon one time. Fell asleep in this used vehicle, big old truck. And I started 500 feet straight down. And I hit this big white rock that the CCCs during the Second World War and before the Second World War had put there. And I bounced back onto the, onto the highway. Uh, you know, did crazy things, stupid things like that. Moved to Los Angeles because I couldn't make it in L.A. And I got a little house with a white picket fence. God, Woodland Hills, beautiful area. We moved from that house to six different houses just to keep the kids in the, in the right school. And I couldn't pay the rent. And I couldn't pay. I lost the house. And I couldn't pay the rent. Couldn't pay the. Couldn't pay anything. And I finally um, had a knock on the door one day because what I used to do is I'd go to these bars and you know to to make people like me, I would buy the house a drink and write them a hot check. Buy the house a drink. 
write them a hot check. I was probably wrote more checks than Nancy said she wrote, you know, because they came, knocked on the door one day, and they took me to jail. They took me to jail as you know, as as a as a check writer, and I I had to pay bail, and I had to get out, and I had to go through that court, that all that 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 every damn session I told a lie. I had I had a public defender because I didn't have enough money to pay my own way. And finally, I got convicted of writing felony checks, you know. I'm a convicted felon, for crying out loud. And, you know, that's not too good of a thing to, to be, you know. Doesn't work good on your resume, let's put it that way, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, kept drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. 320 pounds, fat, ugly, bloated human being. I had 61 jobs before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Don't laugh. It takes a lot of energy to get 61 jobs. <laughs> And I've had 24 since I've been here. So <laughs> for you newcomers, you know, don't plan on getting that great job right off the bat, you know. <laughs> and I, uh, I finally went into my own business uh, in the swimming pool sales and service business. And, man, I was doing great. I had Kim Novak and Red Skelton. And I had all these stars on my route. I had 75 accounts. And it seems like all my life... I was a 75 percenter. It seemed like I could climb up the ladder of success about 75 percent of the way, and something would happen. Something would cause me to fail. Something would cause me to just disintegrate, you know. But I'm a great con artist, and I could always con my way into believing that I can do it again. And I did, over and over and over again, you know. And I had 75 accounts, and all of a sudden, I woke up one day, I had 10 accounts left, and uh, getting letters in the mail from... from um, we don't want Mr. Carpenter in our backyard anymore. My wife caught him urinating in the swimming pool. <laughs> I don't remember urinating in the swimming pool. <laughs> Got one from Don Monan. He was a great uh, band leader. And he had married this beautiful little gal, 21-year-old singer, famous, a real popular singer at the time, you know. And then the letter said, uh, Keith, you're a good friend and a good buddy, but I don't ever want to see you again. My new wife caught you peeing on the filter. <laughs> and I, and I, I honestly can't remember ever doing those things. But I didn't know about blackouts. I didn't know that, that we had blackouts, we alcoholics. I, didn't, I wasn't an alcoholic. I, mean, I used to sit up in Mulholland and look down on that freeway going by and have a can of beer, or two cans of beer in the, in the paper, brown paper sack between my legs and suck on those beers and try to figure out, you know, what is wrong with me? Why can't I make it? You know, I've had potential. I've, a horrible word, you know. I, you know, every well, you got potential, you know. I had it, you know. Look at my buddy Gifford. I mean, God, he made it uh, to where he was a big star, you know. Why couldn't I have done something, you know, to be more than I am today? And you know what I figured out? You know, what this maniac up here in this mind that every alcoholic has. You know what it told me? It said, Keith, you're never going to make it. You're going to be like this the rest of your life. Just go and keep drinking and keep trying, and maybe something might happen. And so I just kept trying, you know, kept just trying to be somebody, trying to, you know, just trying to get one job that was a good job. I just couldn't get a good job. And um, on July 19th, I drove to Bakersfield to get some Basque food, because they always had wine on the table, you know, in, the, in those Basque restaurants. And um, about nine months prior to that, this lovely lady that I'm still married to, she came to me and she says, I made an appointment with the National Council on Alcoholism for you, and you better go. And I says, Is 
if you promise just not to yell and scream at me, I'll go. Because she had a way of yelling and screaming. You got a backbone like a jellyfish. You know, where's your willpower? You know, just, you're an alcoholic. Oh, God, I hated that, you know. I said, just don't yell and scream. And I said, I'll go. So I got in the truck, went down there, talked to a guy named Frank Huddleston. He gave, uh, me, gave her a couple of phone numbers, and I didn't even listen to him. I just got problems, you know. I, I just can't get successful. I can't put the magic together to make it, you know. I, that's my problem. I'm not an alcoholic, like he, the story he's telling me. Chased his mother with a butcher knife. Oh, I love my mother, you know. <laughs> anyway, on July 19th, I drove to Bakersfield. Came back to him that, that night. I woke up the next morning drinking for three solid weeks. Trying to find the answer. I just trying to work something out. <laughs> Didn't know, didn't know what to do about my, my life, my situation, who I was. Beautiful wife, beautiful kids. I had three kids by that time. You know, why can't I make it? And I woke up, and I was so hungover that I literally rolled out of bed onto the floor. Boom. And I could not get up. And I crawled into the porcelain altar. Remember the porcelain altar? You put your head against that cold porcelain. Oh, God, that felt good with a great hangover, you know. And I lifted the wooden seat up, and I'm going, I'm vomiting, just, I mean, really giving it my best, you know. And uh, this wife of mine got one of those numbers from Frank Huddleston. She put it all over the house. We had one of those little machines, those guns where you could make them and peel it off and stick it on things. She stuck it on the mirror in the bedroom, the mirror in the bathroom, the refrigerator, the hall. She stuck that number everywhere, and I said, I'm never going to call that number. That's A&A, you know. And I wasn't. Although, when I lifted that wooden seat up and was going, oh, down there, right on the porcelain, was 3922636. <laughs> and I looked at that number and I said, oh my God, maybe I better call it <laughs> And I kind of cleaned myself up and I went into the hall phone because I knew the number was there. I couldn't remember the number from the toilet to the hall, you know. <laughs> And I lifted that phone, I dialed that number, and it was Clancy. I, I thought Clancy was a stupid name myself, you know. <laughs> what am I calling this name for, you know? Anyway, I called it, and he answered the phone, and I said, uh, is this where I'm supposed to call if I have a drinking problem, you know? And so Clancy said, uh, do you have a drinking problem? And I said, well, I don't know about that, but my wife hates me, and she's divorcing me, and my kids hate me. And he says, wait a minute, kid, you got a drinking problem. <laughs> you know? which is, was the truth, you know. And uh, he said he had to go to work. He was shaving. Uh, he hung the phone up. And I kind of thought he hung up on me. Kind of just messed around. And I need a, a beer and I need a, a pack of cigarettes. I was smoking four or five packs of Salem cigarettes. And I went and got in my truck, a year and a half old. My wife had taken all the beer cans, put them upside down in the seat. The beer had run out that, you know, that I hadn't drank, you know. And I opened the door and they all fell out. And I'm kicking those cans. And I get in that seat and go, squish, you know, that beer. <laughs> You know, and I drove that truck down to the next store, and I bought one half quart of beer. I always bought two, and I bought one half quart of beer. And I got out in the truck in a pack of Salem cigarettes, and I took one cigarette, you know, that first drag, you know, and I took that beer and just went gurgle, 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 gurgle. And I started out to this beauty, pepper trees all over me, and I'm just slowly chugging along in that street from the wrong pipe, you know, and I, went, <coughs> and I just vomited all over the windshield. And I'm driving, I can't see where I'm going, you know. <laughs> Hung over, but this maniac said, turn the windshield wipers on. <laughs>
Didn't work, folks, you know. Stopped the truck. Got home. Then I remembered Clancy said, I'm going home. I'm going to work, and I'll call you later. And the phone rang. And we had a talk, and he sent a guy out to make a 12-step call. And, he, and then a guy named Tommy took me to my first meeting. And the next night I went to a meeting on Beverly Hills and heard Clancy talk. He was talking about it on a Friday night. And I was told to ask him to be my sponsor. And I don't know if I said it too firmly or not, but anyway, he's been my sponsor ever since. And I've been a member of the Pacific and I've done a lot of fantastically wonderful things that made me feel good, like mopping the floor at my home group every Tuesday night. I had a guy I sponsored who was American Building Maintenance, and I said, buy some new pails and some new mops and some new brushes and everything, and we mopped that floor and cleaned it better than anybody had ever cleaned it, you know? But you know what, what happens when you do that? Your people are still talking and milling around how they do. And you say, excuse me, you know, I want to mop the floor, you know, you know. And they say, well, who, what's your name, you know? Well, my name's Keith, you know. Oh, you're new, you know. I said, I'm fairly new. You know? And they get to know you. And the next week, they come by, oh, Keith, he pardoned me. They know me. People know you when you do stupid things like that. <laughs> they do. Clean the ashtrays. Used to have, you know, make the coffee. You know? Stand at the door and be a greeter. Go to this crazy, stupid Tehachapi men's prison. Third Wednesday of every week, I went there for four years. Took 30, 40 people up there one time, you know, every Wednesday. You know, just did crazy things, you know, that, God, you know, I don't think Frank Gifford did those things. You know, think about it, you know. Normal people don't do those things. But members of the Pacific Group and Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole do those things, you know. And the reason we knew them is the connection. You keep the connection. The connection to the thing that's going to save your life. It made me into the person that I've always wanted to be. I'm not important anymore. I mean, I'm just Keith. I'm just able to walk through every day, no matter what happens, and it's okay. Jesus, what a wonderful thing that is, you know? And it's all because I mock drawers. You know? <laughs> you know? Because I call my sponsor every day and have. I've traveled all over the world since I've been sober. And I've called him from Paris. I've called him from Copenhagen. I've called him from every London on Wednesday. Now it's Wednesday. I call him every Wednesday. Because we have our home group on Wednesday. It was changed from Tuesday to Wednesday because we had to make a move, you know? You know? I call him. I make the connection. Kept me in fantastic stead. I um, I was a year and nine months sober, and uh, God, I all of a sudden the damn chairs, my back hurt when I sat in them. We had benches in our home group, and that bench hurt, you know. And I said, the speakers, what the hell do they know? They they're making up those stories, you know. <laughs> I got very complacent doing everything I was supposed to do. And I wanted to go to Saudi Arabia and make $10 million and come off, pay all my bills and buy that house and be somebody, you know. And I went down to Clancy. He was working downtown L.A. at 9th Street and for the Bose Company in, uh, in advertising. And I asked him, I says, hey, I, I, I can't make it anymore. I just, it's just not working for me. I just feel horrible and I, I got this job and I want to go, you know. And he says, well, you better take the third. And I said, well, tell me how. And he says, I can't. He says, you got to take it when you really want to take it. you got to take the action to take the third step you know, in your own way. 
and I walked out and got in my truck and I'm driving down the freeway and it came out, why don't you try to accept the seemingly bad things as well as the good things as necessary for your growth, you big dumb Swede, you know? And I kicked that around and thought about it for a while and then I uh, went home that night and I hadn't prayed up to this point. I had never been on my knees since I was a kid up to this point. And I said, well, maybe I better try to say this and put it in the form of prayer and maybe it will work for me as, as a third step. And I said, dear God, as I understand, please help me to accept the seemingly bad amen instead of your big sweet, you know. And uh, I said it every night and every morning. And three weeks later, I'm sitting in the nest and I'm all dressed up in a suit trying to get a job because I couldn't get a job. My heart started to explode on me and a knife jabbed me in the heart and I passed out under the table. And I woke up and they were trying to put a wallet in my mouth because they thought I was going to have a convulsion or something. I said, leave me alone, you know, us Swedes, you know, how we are, you know, blockheaded, you know. I took three steps and I fell. And the next thing I woke up, I'm in an ambulance and the sirens scream and the sweat's rolling off my head and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm having a heart attack. I'm dying. The pain was just tremendously, tremendous. Like, like a big knife or a, a big needle jabbing me in the heart. And I'm uh, saying, oh, dear God, as I understand, please help me accept this seemingly bad thing. What am I saying that for? You know, and I'm screaming. And I said, dear God, please help me accept this seemingly bad thing. You know, I was going crazy, you know. When you're going to die, that's seemingly bad. Let's face it, you know. <laughs> and I get to the hospital, and there was a gal named Mary Regan who was running the nest at that time, and she had a job at that hospital. And she saw me in this gurney, you know, and she says, Keith, what's wrong? And, you know, and I couldn't talk. She, and four days later, I get out of the hospital, folks. And you know what it said on my medical report? Obesity and irritable bowels. <laughs> Little gas escaped underneath my ribs gauge, you know. I thought it was a heart attack, you know. <laughs> Two weeks later, my daughter is going to move out and uh, move in with Joe, who was a known doper. And my daughter was, she was perfect. I never even knew she even drank a beer for granted. She was 19 years old. Tall, gorgeous, beautiful. She was she was. She worked in the movies, and she worked on the sets, and she was very popular, and very, really a, a beautiful woman. And she's coming in with Joe, and Joe was sitting at the kitchen table with a stupid hat on and dingleberries hanging down, and a hog motorcycle out front, you know. And I took him, and I threw him right out in the damn lawn, just threw him out of the lawn. And he took off, and I tried to force my will on my daughter. You can't force your will on anybody, especially your daughter. You know what I did? I went insane, kids. I went insane. I spanked her. She was 19 years old. I slapped her in the face. I yelled and I screamed and I hollered. And I went to Clancy and I said, what do I do? And he says, write about it. I said, write about it? What good is that going to do? He said, write about it. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote eight, ten pages, both sides. And I found uh, my daughter. She had a little job uh, at that time working uh, for Golden West Airways out there. And I handed her this paper and I said, Ken, I think you're making a mistake. He just, you know, will be available. And I said, read this. And I tell her, I wonder about it. Just handing it to her is like a thousand pounds off my shoulder. It's an unbelievable thing when you write something and put it on paper. There's something different about it, you know. And I've done that on many, many times since. And she moved out with uh, this guy that, you get a call at 5.30 in the morning, it'll Santa Monica Hospital. So they said, we have your daughter here, we don't know. She's been listed as a Jim Sally, and I called Clancy, and he was there before I was there, I think. He was there. We were there. We met the doctor, and the doctor said that she was in intensive care, and she, <clears throat> she probably would not live. 
She's had seven operations on her head. He said, the only thing I can uh, tell you is there's a chapel down there and <clears throat> go to that chapel. We provide for people like you and pray to the God of your understanding, you know. And we did that, you know, and uh, she didn't come out of intensive care. And I said, uh, I said, this is really important, I think. I said, the Clancy, what the hell am I going to do? It's my daughter, my only daughter. He says, go to meetings. Sit halfway back in the meeting. That is good advice. And I did that. And Sally did that. She, two months later, she came out of the hospital. And she made it. She lived. And that boyfriend of hers was found in a cave above Burbank with his hands tied behind his back and a bullet in the back of his head. You know? I wanted to kill that kid before that, you know. He killed himself. You know, he killed himself. His disease killed him. Let's say, I, you know, I really, you know. Anyway, that daughter, she uh, started gaining extra weight and going to therapists, you know, and trying to get it. For 17 years, that daughter of ours drank and used on a daily basis. Many days, I expect to get a phone call saying they found her dead. Many days, but kept going to the meetings. Get being really involved in alcoholics. My wife has one day less in Al-Anon than I have in AA, and I'll never let her forget it. <laughs> Even though she's got the podium tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, anyway, she, you know, all of a sudden she said, I'm going to go to Pony, Montana. Because I'm tired of living down here. Ended up going up to Pony, Montana. I'm still drinking, still using everything. And found alcoholics anonymous up there, you know. But 17 years. And we went to the program. We did. We got involved in the program. I did a thing called Sober Sailors for seven years, which, Jesus, is fun and involved with people, and we did a lot of things. I had an opportunity to be the very first marathon chairman in New Orleans in the World Convention because we had put on a, a marathon at the Southern California Convention. It was really neat. We had big books all over, and we had sayings all over, and uh, a gal named Betty from the World Service Office saw that and said, will you do the first marathon? They had never had a marathon before. We had a guy named Pete that uh, came into that meeting uh, on a Friday night, and he was all filthy, dirty, and smelly, and drunk, and he says, uh, I saw the badges, what is this? And somebody told him it was AA, and took him into the marathon meeting at the Marriott Hotel, and uh, they came over to me, and they said, we've got a newcomer here. And I said, yeah, you sure do. <laughs> Took him, uh, went up to the podium, and, in, and, and I interrupted the, the podium, and I said, if anybody here from New Orleans that would like to take Pete, this newcomer, to a motel and get him a shower, and you know, and about 10, 15 guys jumped up, and they grabbed him, they took him to this, to this motel, I think they took him to a clubhouse, really, and got him a shave, and you know, washed his clothes and everything. The next morning, he's there at 6 o'clock in the morning, sitting in the front row, you know, and he's there all that day, and that night, and then the next morning... I had the opportunity, because I was chairman, to take the candle, the marathon candle. Um, Chuck Nesbitt was my co-chairman, and uh, he and I grabbed Pete and said, Pete, come on with us. Well, where am I going? I said, well, we're going to the Superdome. He said, well, what am I going to do? And I said, don't worry about it. And he said, no, I don't want to go, you know. <laughs> so we jammed in this cab, <laughs> put the candle on his lap, you know, <laughs> rode over to the Superdome, Went in, we walked, they had a special place for us to go in, brought the candle down, and I was able to walk up this, Jesus, bunch of stairs to the podium, was way up high, and got up there and put the candle there, and then they called me up to tell them, and there's a lot of people there, I don't know.
and he, he started running out the back door, you know. <clears throat> and uh, I think Clancy was involved in that with Chuck Desmond, and he got him to go up there, go up there, you know. <clears throat> Pete walked up those stairs, you know. And I told him the story about him, you know, going there, and he blew that candle out, and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Like, you know, to be involved in something like that and get those feelings and it'll save them your life. For you know? <clears throat> I tell you that uh, I have a son that, uh, his name is Keith, and I'm in business with him. We make wood-burning ovens, and we son, Kyle, that uh, is using and abusing and called one of my sponsees, a guy named Fred Morlich, and asked years ago. Got a job the next day writing keynote, and has been going meetings for five days, though. So. And he's been up there and out there for a long time, and I expected a phone call any day that he would be dead, you know. But we kept going to meetings, you know. We kept taking direction. We kept doing the things that is in front of us, one day at a time, you know. God is so simple. This thing is so simple. And when it's simple, you love it. God, you know, I, I absolutely love this program. My daughter will be 20, no, 12 years sober on... Nancy's birthday, May 23rd. Sally and I uh, probably uh, live the, uh, uh, for us, the greatest life that we can live. And yet, you know, we have days that the seemingly bad thing steps in. You know? Things happen, you know. Two years ago, on the, my 65th birthday, I was at University of California, San Francisco Hospital because I was losing my, and, uh, I was stumbling and falling. In fact, I was went down to hear Clancy at Jekyll Island about six months before that and, and I had this food in my, in my plate and I hit this little thing because I didn't see it and I stumbled and fell and I just smashed the whole table out, you know. And Clancy said, what are you doing, playing football again, you know? <laughs> but you know what it was? It was that uh, I had the tibial arteries that weren't getting blood to the brain and I was stumbling and I was falling and I couldn't see and I was seeing double driving down freeways, you know. Anyway, I went up there, and they said, four doctors said, you got four day, you got two weeks to live unless uh, we operate on you. And we've only done this operation about 20 times. And I called Clancy, and Chuck Nesbitt came up, and my other guy came up, and Sally was there. And, you know, we did it, you know. And I came out of that operation. You know. But, boy, I tell you, that was a seemingly bad. <laughs> Don't laugh, man. <laughs> it may happen to you. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you something, you know, I don't know, about two weeks before that, or a month before that, I had a, I had a talk with my sponsor, and, he, and we talked about death, you know, and he says, you know, Keith, he says, I'm, I'm ready to go. He says, hey, if, if I die tomorrow, you know, and I, you know, I remembered that little conversation, and I laid in that bed just before they did the operation, and I says, I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to, to, to make it up there with Bill and Bob and, you know, all of Chuck Chamberlain and all the PM. And I feel that way today, you know, ready. And you know why I'm ready? Because of you. I'm ready because I have a sponsor. I have worked the steps, adhered to the traditions. I adhere to, to all the, the, the third legacy. I, I, I try to do today everything that's necessary to make me continue to love you continue to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, to just have what I have today. Thank you.